Last week we began this series on the church, and we saw last week the authority of the church uh, expressed in what Jesus said to the church about the keys of the kingdom, and that he gave the keys of the kingdom to Peter and to the apostles, and then to the local church. And that authority is to declare who is a believer in Jesus Christ and who is not. That is, to receive into the membership of the church and, if necessary, to dismiss from the membership of the church uh, those who are either living in accordance with the teaching of Scripture and the life uh, lifestyle of a believer or those who are not. And so we saw the authority and we looked at some of the instances in the book of Acts. We looked at them briefly when Peter was there and he was loosing. He was using the keys of the kingdom to open the gospel to the Jews and then to the Samaritans and then to the Gentiles. And now we're going to look at one of those texts to study it more carefully and see how this worked and what it meant to enter into the church, to become a member of the church. We're looking at Acts, Acts chapter 2, verse 36 to 47. And what we're doing is we're picking up with the last line of Peter's sermon and then the consequences of uh, the results of that sermon. So second, uh, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 2. It's on page 1008 in the Bibles that are available to you, picking up at verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God our strength, and our Redeemer. Amen. Alex de Tocqueville was a French nobleman, and he wanted to promote his career, and one of the ways he thought he could do that was by visiting the United States in the early 1830s and then writing about his experience. He wrote a book called Democracy in America. And one of the things that impressed de Tocqueville about the United States was its, its tendency to form associations, to form associations. He wrote this, In the United States, as soon as several inhabitants have taken an opinion or an idea they wish to promote in society, they seek each other out and unite together once they have made contact. From that moment... 
They are no longer isolated, but have become a power seen from afar whose activities serve as an example and whose words are heeded. And in part based on what he wrote about the United States, we have been called a nation of joiners, of joiners that we join together uh, for the causes in which we believe. In the year 2000, by contrast, Robert Putnam wrote a book called Bowling Alone. And he reported that club meeting participation over 25 years from 1975 to 2000 dropped 58% in the United States. Family dinners dropped by 43% in the United States. And visiting friends in a spontaneous way dropped by 35%. In the year 2011, an MIT professor named Sherry Turkle wrote a book called Alone Together. And she wrote that book to describe, as her subtitle says, why we expect more from technology and less from each other. And then, finally, in 2012, Eric Kleinenberg published Going Solo, The Extraordinary Rise and Surprising Appeal of Living Alone. In Pompano Beach, 36.7% of the people live alone. In Fort Lauderdale, 39.4% live alone. And in Lauderdale-by-the-Sea, a whopping 48% live alone. We are no longer a nation of joiners. We are increasingly a nation of loners. Over that 25-year period about which Putnam wrote, some innovative churches decided that the way to reach people was to make the church as accessible as possible so that people wouldn't feel any sort of transition coming from the world into the church. And what they tried to do was take down all barriers. And one of the barriers that they thought they needed to take down was this idea of church membership. And they questioned whether that was even a a biblical notion to join a church or whether it was a human imposition. And uh, also, over the years, not just those years, but over many years, unfortunately, many people have been hurt by churches. And there have been a number of scandals involving leaders in the church. And so there has been an understandable tendency to pull away because we just don't trust the church anymore or its leadership. Many, therefore, are not only bowling alone and eating alone and living alone, but many are worshiping alone or in very loose connection with other people. Today we're going to look at a text that shows that when God calls us to Himself, He not only calls us to Himself, but He also calls us to each other. And what we have here in Acts chapter 2, we didn't read the, the whole sermon of Peter, but the context is this, it was on the day of Pentecost, and that was one of the festivals in which the Jews gathered from all the nations, and uh, Jerusalem was packed, and there were these Christians 
not yet called Christians, but these followers of Jesus, about 120, and Jesus told them to wait there until the gift of the Father had been given to them. And so they were waiting. And on that day they were praying, and on that day some unusual phenomenon happened, and there were tongues of fire that fell upon them, and they began speaking in known languages, unknown to them, but known to all these visitors from other places. And the people said, what's going on here? Are they drunk? And I've never known alcohol to give the ability to speak a language that you've never studied before. But uh, that was a, not a, a tenable explanation. And Peter says, no, that's not what's happening. It's only, it's only morning, so we're not drunk. Nobody's drunk here. This is what Joel the prophet promised. That in the last days, that God would pour out His Spirit on all flesh. Not just on men, but on women. Not just on the old, but also on the young. And that's what's happening here. And then he took that opportunity to go and preach the gospel. And that's what we have. And let me just give you a a summary of his sermon. So in verses 14 to 21, we didn't read this, but I commend it to you. 14 to 21, he explained the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then he said in verse 22, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth was sent from God and he was attested to by God through the signs that God gave him. Then verse 23, he was unjustly crucified, but his crucifixion was not a mistake. It was rather God's plan. And then God raised him from the dead, verses 24 to 35. He raised him from the dead and death could not hold him. And then we have what we read today, Peter's conclusion. And the conclusion is in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, the hearers were alarmed because they had just been accused of crucifying the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's Anointed One, the Lord's Savior, the Lord Himself. And so they were very alarmed. Because they said, brothers, what should we do? Now think about this. They probably were thinking that there is no option. There is nothing to do. God had sent uh, the Lord. God had sent the Messiah. And they had crucified that Messiah. And now that Messiah was raised up and reigned on high. And you can imagine their alarm. And they were saying, what should we do? After committing such a terrible mistake. And Peter urged them, to change their minds in the first place. To change their minds. There are a number of, of, uh, of words in the, the New Testament that are translated to repent. But one of the most common one, ones is change your mind. And so he says to them in verse 37 what they should do. He says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter said in verse 38, Peter said to them, repent, that is change your mind and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what's the first thing he says? Change your mind. You thought that he was a malefactor. You thought that he was a rabble-rouser. You thought that he was a troublemaker. You thought that he was a false prophet, and therefore you and your leaders, you rejected him and you crucified him. You need to change what you think about him. You need to realize that He is God's anointed one, and He is God's Messiah, that He is the chosen one, that He's the one who came to save you from your sins, and that God raised Him from the dead, that He is both Lord and Christ. So that's the first thing you need to do. You need to turn from having rejected the Messiah and recognize who the Messiah is. And then He said in 
in recognition of that, in public recognition of that change of mind, you need to be baptized. Now, baptism was something that was familiar to the Jews because when Gentiles, non-Jews, wanted to become Jews, they baptized themselves. They weren't baptized by others, but they took a ritual bath. And uh, it, was, it was symbolic of being cleansed from their, their old lives and moving into the, the life of, of being a Jew. And then, in addition, John the Baptist had quite, uh, caused quite a stir not far from Jerusalem. And they knew all about this. And he was baptizing for repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so this was not a new idea to them. Uh, being washed in water uh, as a symbol of the forgiveness of sins. And Peter said to them, if you, if you turn from thinking uh, incorrectly about Christ and begin to believe correctly about Christ and you are baptized, you will receive gifts. And the gifts, he says, in verse 38, he says, you receive forgiveness of your sins. You will receive, in addition, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, they had just received the gift of the Holy Spirit, the original disciples, and he said, you will get the same gift. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in addition to that, it's not just for you. It's for your children as well. Verse 39, For the promise of forgiveness and of the Holy Spirit is for you and for your children. And then he adds something. By the way, that's the, the, the covenant formula that we have from the Old Testament. We looked at covenants recently, and we saw that covenants were with believers and who? who uh, whom else? Their children. And here we find that repeated. This is for you, and it's for your children. And then he adds to the covenant formula. He says, and to those who are far off. Now, it's interesting that Peter is saying this, and Peter didn't even realize yet who all those far-off people would be. But as we continue to read, guess who those far-off people are? We're the far-off people, those Gentiles who were far from God, excluded from the covenant, and excluded from membership in the people of Israel. And so, he's saying, this is, this is getting more expansive here. It's for you, it's for your children, and it's for those who are far off. And then he adds, in verse 40, another word, salvation. He says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So we have forgiveness, the Holy Spirit, a promise for our children and for the Gentiles, and salvation. And we also have another description of those who were responding. Not only is repentance the word that's used, but if you look at verse 41, it says, those who received His word were baptized. And uh, then, if you look down at verse 44, there's another description, and it says, uh, those who had believed, and all who believed. So let's sort of put this together. So what's, what's the message that's being preached? What is the good news that's being preached? That Jesus is the Lord, that is, He is God, that He is the chosen Messiah, sent from God, that He died to bring us the forgiveness of our sins, that God raised Him from the dead to conquer over life, and we need to respond to that by changing what we think about Jesus, by believing all these things about Jesus, by turning to Him in faith, repentance, and showing that by being baptized. And if that is our response, we will receive all these gifts that He has bought for us. Now, let's look at verse 41. Because this was a, a sermon like no other sermon. 
I don't know whether this has happened before or since. Maybe it has at some other time. But it says that 3,000 persons responded positively to that message. Those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And uh, those of us who are preachers would love to see three respond uh, to a message in, in that way. Uh, or 30 would be, would be an amazing response. 300 would be unimaginable, but 3,000 responding in one day. But I want you to see a verb that Luke, the author, uses here. He says, not only did they respond, were they baptized, but they were added. Added. And we need to ask the question, added to what? Added to what? And the answer that we get in the next verses, verses 42 to 47 is, they were added to the church. They were added to the church. Now this is remarkable. Because you might find something of a disconnect between the Gospels and the book of Acts. Because Jesus in the Gospels barely mentions the church. We looked at all the verses that refer to the church. There are only three. We looked at all of those last week. And he says to them at the end of Matthew, Go make disciples of all the nations. And what do they do? They go out and they start churches. They start churches. So it looks like the church is a bigger thing in the plan of God for the redemption of the world than than we might pick up from the Gospels alone. But the apostles didn't get it wrong. They understood what Jesus was saying. And in order to make disciples, they made churches. They started churches. They added people to churches. Now, this is the pattern throughout the entire New Testament. And it is very difficult to find anyone in the New Testament who is a baptized believer in Jesus Christ, who is not a part of a local church. There's one example. Uh, It's the Ethiopian eunuch. He was traveling. Philip intercepted him, preached the gospel to him. He was on his way back to Ethiopia. And uh, he received the gospel, and Philip baptized him right there, and he went on his way. That is the only one that I can find. There may be others, but that's the only one I can find. That is an exceptional situation. And we don't know what happened when he got back to Ethiopia. may have started a church there himself, because that's what tended to happen. If they were going to new places, they tended to take the gospel and start churches there. So, uh, what, what does this look like? That's what Peter goes on to tell us. In verses 42 to 47, this is what the original church in Jerusalem looked like to those who were added to it. So they knew the number, didn't they? Uh, I don't know how they knew. Uh, they obviously had to count, but I don't know how, if they wrote all the names down, but they knew who was there and they knew who wasn't. They knew who had been added and they knew who hadn't been added. So they had something like a, a record of the members of the church. Now, what did they do? And this is the description of the local church in verses 42 to 47. And it says in verse 42, four activities to which they devoted themselves. Four activities. And here we have some touchstones for what is a church and what is a biblical church. What does a biblical church look like? And it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayer. So we're going to look at those four things. They devoted themselves to, first of all, the apostles' 
teaching. They devoted themselves to it. Now, there may have been others that would listen to the apostles' teaching, but these were those, those who had been numbered as part of the church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, what was the apostles' teaching? The apostles' teaching was Jesus' teaching. If you go back and look at uh, the, the Gospels, we find that what did Jesus do? He spent three years teaching these apostles, and then the apostles were those who taught the original church. You might say, well, what about us? The apostles aren't around anymore, but thankfully we have their teaching, which is Jesus' teaching in the New Testament. And so we don't have to be uh, questioning what is the apostles' teaching. We have the apostles' teaching. So what is a, a, an apostolic church look like? How do you know that a church is an apostolic church? A church is an apostolic church if it's devoting itself to the teaching that is in the Bible. That's the first mark of the church, and that's the first mark of someone who is added to the church, a devotion to the teaching of Scripture. The second is, it says they devoted themselves to the fellowship. Now, this word fellowship is a a word that that can mean a number of different things. It's it's, it's like our word fellowship. Um, Fellowship can mean communion with one another, my daughter is currently in a medical fellowship in the academic setting. It needs something else. Uh, but uh, here, it looks like it has a specific meaning. The word is koinonia. Maybe you've heard that Greek word, koinonia. Their church is named koinonia. Uh, but we'll take a look at verse 44, and that gives us an idea of what this fellowship looks like. And all who believed were together and had all things in common in common. That in common is koina. Koina. So they devoted themselves to the koinonia, and then it immediately says that they had all things in koina, in common. So what is fellowship specifically here? It's helping each other out, those who had needs. And it says remarkably that in verse 45, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, who are those all included there? Those are the 3,000. So this is something that they're doing for each other, sharing their, their resources with each other. Now, later, we find other means of helping each other within the church. Uh, later, we'll find a daily food distribution for the widows. We will find the appointing of the first deacons, in order to take care of the needs of, of those who were lacking. Later on, we'll find a general offering that Paul took up among the Gentile churches for the suffering Jewish churches in Judea. So we find various means, not only selling possessions and sharing those possessions, but other means as well, as the case indicated. But we do see that this is a characteristic of the Christian church. This is one of the things that a church does, takes care of its own. Now, we can take care of other people as well. Uh, we can be generous with those outside of the number of the church, and that's something that, that we're called upon to do, but there is a special emphasis in the church of taking care of one another. Those who have means, sharing those means to help other people. That's the second thing. The third is, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread. Now, once again, this is a a phrase that's used in at least two contexts. One is, breaking bread simply means eating meals together. 
And the early Christians certainly ate meals together. If you look at uh, verse 46, it talked about that. It says they broke bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. So they certainly did eat meals in each other's homes. Um, But uh, probably in this context, it means what it means in some other contexts. And you can imagine, breaking bread is sometimes, and I think it's properly seen here as the Lord's Supper where bread is broken together and wine is shared together. So this is the third thing to which they devoted themselves. And you might wonder about the Lord's Supper in our church. You might think, well, our church doesn't care much about the Lord's Supper because we have not yet had the Lord's Supper. But there's a very uh, simple explanation for that. It's not that we care about it. It's because we care about it so much. We care about it so much and we, we want it to be ministered, administered in its integrity. And what are we lacking up to this point? We're lacking a number. We have not yet received into the number of our church those who are admitted to the Lord's Supper. So in other words, once we have formed a membership, then we can share in this. That's what they did here. It wasn't just anyone who could share in the Lord's Supper. It wasn't just anyone with whom they shared their resources. It was with those who had been numbered as part of the church. And the final thing is this. They devoted themselves to the prayers. And it says, the prayers. It looks like they had appointed times for prayer. We did a short series on prayer. I think it was at the beginning of this year, if I recall properly, or perhaps it was the end of last year, I don't remember. But we did notice that our culture is perhaps not the strongest in praying And if you go around the world and look in Christian churches and other places, they devote themselves to the prayers. And they have appointed times for prayer. And we took a a small technological step toward praying, one for another, and we're using an app to do that. And that's not been a bad thing. But we're still lacking praying together. That's what they did. They prayed together. And if you look at all of these things, and by the way, we want to remedy that. We want to take another baby step And we're going to be announcing soon occasional, perhaps monthly, prayer meetings in homes. That's what they did here. They prayed in homes, and we're going to be doing that as well. But notice these things. These things, with the possible exception, possible exception of the apostles' teaching. All of these things require that we be together. We can hear apostles teaching now. We can dial it up on our phones. We can look for, for Bible teachers and we can get apostles teaching on the TV or the radio or on our phones. So, so we have maybe another private means of getting to the apostles teaching, but the rest of these things require that we be present. And there's still nothing like uh, being present when someone is teaching as well. They all require that we are together. Now, what were the results of these Christians doing these simple things? Um, If you look at verse 46 and 47, we have the results. It says, Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Uh, It does say that there were some signs being done through the apostles. So there were some amazing things being done, just by the apostles apparently, not by the Christians in general, but God was giving signs to the apostles. So there were some spectacular things going on. But what were the rest of the 3,000 doing? Were they out doing spectacular things? They were doing things like this. Praising God, going to the temple and meeting in the temple and praising the Lord there. Meeting in their homes and, and praying. 
and breaking bread together and being generous with their possessions and devoting themselves to to the apostles' teaching. These were very simple things that they were doing together. And the result of that, look at the end of verse 47, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There's that word again. Adding to their number. Increasing the membership of the church. And that is really the story of the rest of the book of Acts. That he, the, the, the gospel went out to new places. Believers were baptized, formed in the local churches, and God added to the number. Then they went out and did the same thing elsewhere, and God added to the number. Then they went out and did the same thing elsewhere, and God added to their number. And that is, by the way, how we're going to grow as well. Um, we're not going to grow by doing extraordinary things, uh, spectacular things, flashy things. We're going to grow by doing Christ- the things that Christians are supposed to do. That's what we're going to do. Living our lives out publicly in front of other people and living our lives out as Christians in our homes and with each other. And by the way, um, people will find, as they come in, if they're not used to Christianity and to the church, they will find some of the things we do is is kind of odd. Uh, And that's what they tried to get rid of, some of these innovative churches. They tried to get rid of anything that seemed kind of different. But uh, that's not what we need to do. Get rid of anything that might seem different. Uh, What we need to do are the things we're called to do. And uh, they will be impressed with two things in general. And this is what I've seen as I've seen, wherever I've gone, as I've seen the church of God grow and God add to the number. Two things that people come in and they say, well, this was strange, that was strange, why do you do this, why do you do that, why do you say this, why do you sing, why do you pray like this? But there are two things that they're impressed with. One is truth, when they hear the apostles' teaching, which is Jesus' teaching, and the other is love. And they say, I don't understand you all. I don't yet believe what you believe, but I've never seen people who love each other like you love each other. That's what happened at the beginning. That's what's going to happen now. That's how God's going to draw people to us. And that's how God is going to add to our number and to the number of other churches as well. Uh, This last week, I came across an article. And this article resonated with me. It was written December 15th of last year, so it has references to Christmas, because Christmas was was another week away. And Laura Turner, she wrote this as an opinion piece in the New York Times. And uh, she wrote this. She said, Internet church isn't really church. That's That's the title of this. Now, we're not against the Internet, by the way. We're being live-streamed right now. We put these sermons up online in audio. We have a web page, and we have... Uh, Facebook, and so we're not against the the Internet by any means. But she's saying, that's not church. And she tells her story, and I resonated with her story, and I think some of you will resonate with the story as well. She says, when I walk into services on Sunday morning, I'm usually about 30 minutes late. Our six-month-old wakes up from his morning nap at 10, right when the first chords of a hymn begin to be played in our San Francisco church. My husband and I rush to get the baby dressed, fed and in the car. We drop him off at the nursery 20 minutes after all the other kids have settled in, kiss him goodbye, walk upstairs, and find our seats just around the time the sermon is beginning. In this season of life, it would be a lot easier not to go to church. 
And this isn't true just for parents of babies. More and more churches these days are offering services on the Internet. Then she gives some examples. Then she says, not all online church is so flashy. Many congregations simply stream their services for those who can't make it. Many churchgoers consuming church the way we consume the news is more convenient, more in line with our lifestyles than the old-fashioned Sunday morning visit. And yet, church calls, going to a church, sitting in a room with other people for an hour and a half on Sundays is a non-negotiable for me, unless I'm out of town. At the same time, some people find themselves at brunch with friends or catching up on Netflix in bed. I am in a padded, stackable chair at the Russian Cultural Center, my church rents for our services, sitting under a disco ball (laughs) and listening to a sermon about Jesus. Sound familiar? She writes, religious institutions more and more reflect an insular community. Your living room, your phone, your television. No longer will you have to leave your home to interact with fellow worshipers. You can do it all from the comfort and isolation of your own home. We can be members of a body best. We are all together. We can mourn when we observe and wipe away tears, just as we can rejoice when we share smiles and have face-to-face conversations. Studies show that regular attendance at religious services correlates with better sleep, lower blood pressure in older adults, and reduced risk of suicide. I doubt these same phenomena occur when online church is substituted for the real thing because the truth is that community is good for us. We need one another. Two Christmases ago, my husband and I were dealing with our second miscarriage in three months. It was a time that was fraught with anxiety and debilitating sickness. There were so many Sundays when streaming a church service would have been preferable to getting out of bed, and there were Sundays when I couldn't get out of bed at all. But most Sundays, we were there in those stackable chairs. And when the anxiety and the nausea got really bad and I couldn't work, the church came to me. Those same friends who had served me communion were now at my front door with a meal or a book, or a few minutes to pray together. I continued to meet every Tuesday with my Bible study group, women from the church who know everything about what the others are going through. They visited the hospital when, after yet another miscarriage, I gave birth to our son, and he had to spend some time in the neonatal intensive care unit. They sent flowers and meals when we got home. As the holidays approach, I can already feel myself pulled in a dozen different directions. When will we buy the tree? What traditions should we institute for our new family of three? Have I gotten enough work done that I could take a few days off around Christmas? When can I pack to go visit our family? Every moment seems full of things to do. But instead of wanting to put church on TV in the background while I wrap presents, I find myself pulled toward those stackable chairs. The Advent hymns. The communion bread and cup handed to me with the reminder that they are the body and blood of Christ. I want to hear the children sing off key during the lessons and carol service, smell the musty air in the Russian center, eat too many donuts in the common area with the people who are in church with me. This, then, is the beauty of the church. Not that it is perfect or convenient or fits easily into my life, but that without it, my life would be deficient. 
I could still believe in God without the church, could celebrate Christmas without it, or go once a year, but I don't believe I would truly be a Christian without the real, in-person, Sunday morning church. Disco ball and all. I thought we were the only ones with the disco ball. And now I find that across the country in San Francisco, another group is meeting in a musty hall under a disco ball. Now, the point is not that you need a disco ball to have a church. The point is you need each other. And after we had our three miscarriages as well, the church was there for us. And when Whitney was finally born, the church was there for us as well. They were there to weep with us when we wept. And they were there to rejoice with us when we rejoiced. And that's why I love the church. And that's why I need the church. And that's why we all need the church. Because God has called us not only to Himself, but He's called us to each other. Let's pray. God, I thank You for this church. Thank You so much for forming this church. And as I got up this morning and got ready to come here, I thought how much I love this church. I thank You for our disco ball. I thank You for the musty air when we come in, the crumbs on the floor, the toilets that we need to clean, but I thank you most all, most of all for each other. I thank you for the people here. People who have repented and believed in Christ. Many of whom have been baptized. I thank you for their generosity in helping each other out. I thank you that we have the apostles teaching here. I thank you that we can share our means with one another. I thank You that we can meet together for prayer. And I thank You that soon we'll be able to break bread, the bread of communion together, and the cup of wine together. I thank You for Your glorious, imperfect church that Christ died for, and for which He rose, and for which He is coming again, and to which He is adding daily around the globe. I thank You for Your church, O oh God. And I pray, O oh God, for this church and every other church that we would be faithful to the things to which You've called us and that You would add to our number those who are being saved. And I pray, O oh God, for the many alone people around here that You would enable us to be that community that they so desperately need. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.